And you need to make an immediate association of those few words with something else. So it's pretty much black and white. You either get it or you don't. So if you draw a blank, you've lost. Um, so I've got two, two sets of these phrases for you tonight. So here's the first one. And if not. Just three words, those three words. And if not. So like I said, if, if you're not coming up with anything by now, you're not getting it. Um, and chances are most of you won't get it. I'll talk about maybe why that's during a few minutes. Here's your second phrase. Another three words, different three words. East of Eden. East of Eden. you have any idea what that means or what, what we should associate that with? All right, let me back up. The first one, and if not, some translations have but if not, is from the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. But before I briefly summarize that story from Daniel chapter 3, let me tell you where else those three words were used. So I see a couple history buffs in the crowd, which is a good thing. So we're now in 1940, and someone just say it out loud. What was happening in 1940? Thank you. World War II. So in 1940, we're kind of early in the war, and Britain has just sent, well, several months previous, over 300,000 men, soldiers, over the channel into France to try to stop the incursion of Germany into France and Belgium. Uh, This army, this massive army of over 300,000, was unsuccessful. So Germany pushes them back, 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 all the way to the coast of France to a tiny town called, anybody want to yell that out? Good. See, Leanne, I can count on you. Dunkirk. Bad thing is Dunkirk is, does not have a deep harbor, doesn't have docks. It's just a sandy beach with you know, fairly shallow water. And so boats could not get in to rescue these guys, the transport ships. The German army is advancing, and the soldiers face certain death or surrender. So they know they'll either get completely annihilated or Germany will kill a third or a fourth, I mean tens of thousands, and then force the rest to surrender, which probably would have meant the end of the war in terms of Great Britain. There were a few high officials in Parliament waiting for some reason to say, we need to broker some kind of truce with Germany so they won't invade our land. So the rest of the war, including our involvement, rises or falls on whether these 300,000 guys make it or not. They send a message to England that is only three words, and if not... See, here's what's different about 1940 versus today. People were biblically literate, meaning if you were a Christian or not a Christian, you knew your Bible because you grew up with it. It was part of the literature that you read. Again, whether you thought it was God's word or only the word of men. And so the populace in England didn't scratch their heads thinking, man, it's a pretty cryptic, what does that mean? This must be some code. They thought back to Daniel 3 and the story of Daniel. Actually, not Daniel, but his three friends who faced an image that Nebuchadnezzar put up. The friends were told to bow to the image or be killed. And so the friends, this would be my paraphrase, I guess, say basically this, God, the God we serve, has the power to deliver us from your hand even now. 
And if not, we'll still serve God. We will not bend the knee. So this and if not was a way of saying the soldiers to their families back home, we won't surrender. We will stand firm here. We won't be part of some agreement with um, this nation that's trying to take over the world. So that actually had a happy ending. Um, Transport ships uh, got accompanied and helped by smaller vessels that Uh, And there were delays that human historians would call coincidence. We know there's no such thing with God. And the German army got delayed. The smaller boats that people took over were able to ferry the soldiers to the big transports, and the army escaped to go back to Britain to return later with our soldiers in what became known as D-Day. All right, second one I won't spend as much time on. East of Eden, I saw maybe 20 or 30 of you guessed correctly, is a novel by John Steinbeck. I read it again about two years ago, a benchmark for developing characters. Um, However, what I'd also like you to associate that with is where Steinbeck took his title from. East of Eden is right out of the Bible. And even though in his day, in our country and in England, we were losing this knowledge of the Bible... What he wanted people to think of was Genesis chapter 4 and the conflict between Cain and Abel. Of course, Cain kills Abel, and God exiles Cain away from the civilization of that time, which is pretty small, east into the desert, into the wilderness. So Steinbeck wants you, before you read the first word of the first page of the novel, to think back to the conflict between the two brothers. Now, how many people today would think east of Eden and think back to Genesis 4? I think not many. So here's the point. For centuries, I mean, we're talking, you know what a century is? A hundred years. For hundreds of years, in England and in our country, colonies and after we became a, a country, people knew their Bibles. And here's what was amazing. You could drop a name, some just a small part of a story, or even a fragment of a verse in your conversation. And people would know what you're talking about without a reference. You know, you don't have, like the soldiers in Dunkirk didn't say, like was said in Daniel chapter 3, verse 10, they didn't have to reference it. So let me give you another quick example. It'd be like you're 200 years ago in our country, and one guy goes up to another guy, and they converse for a while, and one of the two guys, a speaker, says, wow, you know what, you're like a Jephthah. And the listener knows what he means. The listener knows, Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. What you're saying is, I must be sacrificing my son and my daughter in a harmful way to them. Biblical references, again, for centuries were the common coinage, like a common currency in conversations and in literature. And we all know that that's died out now, don't we? So why do I bring all that kind of stuff up? Because this is what we come across in the Bible. In the prophets of the Old Testament, in Jesus' New Testament, and uh, in the book of Revelation, we have authors and speakers that look back to the past. They kind of assume you know your Bibles, what we would call the Old Testament. They look back to the past to describe the present or the future. So some quick examples. Isaiah chapter 51. You don't have to turn there, just let me explain it. In verse 3, Isaiah says this. I want to describe, kind of my paraphrase again, I want to describe 
the messianic kingdom to you. When Jesus comes again, we would call the second coming. I want to describe that for you. Wow, how do I describe that? I know I'll link up to something that my listeners can relate to. And so Isaiah says in chapter 51 that the desert will be like Eden and the wilderness like the garden of the Lord. Do you grasp that concept? Go back to get to the future. So Isaiah is like, I know what I can describe it as. You know what the Judean wilderness is like, the area to the east and south of Jerusalem. It's rocky, it's barren, the area around the Dead Sea, no green there, it's just dead. That is going to do a 180. That is going to change so that it's so lush, you're going to think God changed the desert to Eden because of Messiah, Messiah's presence, his power, his authority, what he does to change lives and lands when he comes. So here's a New Testament example. Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking to people in a village called um, Capernaum. And again, a paraphrase here, Jesus basically says this, if the miracles I just did among you guys, if I would have done those to the city of Sodom, they would remain to this day. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, you guys are rebelling against God the Father. And there's wickedness in your hearts. And what can I use to describe how, how evil your hearts are? Well, I know that you guys often point the finger at those people in Sodom, how bad they were. You know what? This, let me describe your wickedness for you. It's worse than the people in Sodom. Jesus goes back to an event, creation, Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the exodus out of Egypt, bondage in Egypt, events like those to describe the present or the future. So all of that is to say, we're going to see how that's done in the book of Revelation. So if you've got a Bible on your lap, open up to Revelation chapter 13. Book of Revelation is a fantastic book to look at for Lord's Supper. Why? Because there are pictures all over the place of Jesus. We've sung several tonight both that identify Jesus and describe the kind of relationship we'll have with us. We heard Drew read about a groom and a bride and a marriage and a feast. Well, we're all a part of that. The book of Revelation is like a picture book. It talks about a dragon. That's Satan, by the way. The book of Revelation, we'll see here in chapter 13, talks about two beasts that help the dragon Book of Revelation talks, of course, about the Lamb of God, Jesus, throughout the whole book. Book of Revelation talks about two cities, especially the last half of the book is really a tale of two cities. One is called Babylon. Babylon will symbolize um, humanity in rebellion against God. So all that is bad about humanity and civilization is encapsulated in Babylon. And Revelation talks about a holy righteous city called the New Jerusalem. So two cities, polar opposites. All of that's in this great book. So um, we'll be able to reflect on some of these images when we take the Lord's Supper. Here's how we're going to do this. I will point out and read usually just a part of a verse. 
And then I'd like to show you how that's pulling from Old Testament imagery. So God in the book of Revelation is going back to Old Testament to describe what to us is the future. Just like Isaiah did, just like Jesus did, just like the soldiers at Dunkirk did. And usually in the book of Revelation, they're without reference. Again, it's not like, oh, like Daniel chapter 3 said, and then the quote comes. It's just dropping the quote. Just like men and women did in conversations 200 years ago. Even about 100 years ago, although by World War II it was beginning to change, and after World War II, decade by decade, as a culture, we lost this knowledge of the Bible. So, start with Revelation chapter 13, verse 1. We read this a little bit into the verse. John, the guy who's writing this, says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Then if you look down at verse 11, John sees another beast. Then I saw another beast rising up out of the earth. So this actually causes us, if you knew your Old Testament, to look back to a couple different passages. One of those is going to be the end of the book of Job. Now, I don't think this is crystal clear. It won't be as clear as the other ones I'll show you. But I think one thing we're supposed to think of are the two beasts at the very end of the book of Job. We're not going to turn there. Uh, Some of these references are up on the screens, and we'll post the PowerPoint slides in a couple days on the website if you want to look at some of these on your own. But at the very end of the book, when God responds to Job, among other things, God says, I have complete sovereignty, complete control over two fearful beasts. And they have names in the book of Job. One is called Leviathan and one is called Behemoth. We might say Behemoth or something like that. Some people think this is like an alligator and a hippopotamus. You know what might be? That might be where things started from, but I don't think they're quite fearful enough to evoke the kind of words that, that are used in the book of Job. And the point at the end of the book of Job is that God is sovereign over the most fearful animals you can imagine. So think of it this way. If uh, Jesus is in the ring with the two beasts from Job, one of which, by the way, is a land beast and one which is a sea beast, then we're not in an MMA kind of five-round thing where in the last few seconds of round five, um, Jesus gets some kind of a, a neck hold on these two beasts and they tap out. No. They're not that, just a little bit, you know, they're not that kind of equal. Jesus is up here and the beasts are way, way down. So we're talking first, second, and first round. With one thought from the mind of Christ or one word from his lips, the beasts are destroyed. That's the point God makes in Job. And we're reminded of that when we hit Revelation 13. So Revelation 14. We're only going to look at one image per chapter, and I limited this to the last 10 chapters. reason is that there are hundreds of examples where this happens, where God, in the book of Revelation, wants us to look back to the Old Testament, get a picture in our mind, a story, an image, and that's where it applies to the future. So chapter 14, look down at verse 8. We have this phrase in the middle of verse 8. An angel says this, fallen, fallen is Babylon. That exact phrase, fallen, fallen is Babylon, is taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 21. 
And the audience in the first century would have known their Old Testaments. Jewish believers would have known them. Gentile believers would have respected and known and studied what we call the Old Testament. So part of what God is saying here is, think back to the book of Isaiah. The Babylon of Isaiah's day exalted itself, was proud, arrogant, set itself up to be God. And I brought that Babylon down. Read back through Isaiah chapter 21 and some of the other prophecies in Isaiah about Babylon and you'll see what's going to happen again. We'll see Babylon mentioned again in some other chapters that we'll look at. So chapter 15. Chapter 15, we will look at verse 3, toward the very end of that verse. very last phrase of verse 3 has these words, God is called king of the nations. And then verse 4 starts with, who will not fear? Who in the world would not be afraid of the true God, the only God of the universe? Those words are taken straight out of Jeremiah chapter 10. And in this case, I'm going to look back and read to you a little bit of Jeremiah chapter 10 because I think we're meant to look and read and think of the whole chapter. Here's how Jeremiah chapter 10 starts. Well, verse 2, thus says the Lord, Do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens. So the very start of Jeremiah chapter 10, that speech is, don't learn the way of the nations. Don't go their way. The end of the first part of that speech, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10, the end of that verse says, the nations cannot endure his indignation. The nations won't last if God is righteously angry at them. And then in the middle of chapter 10, verse 7, is the verse that's quoted here in Revelation 15. So what God is saying in Revelation 15 is this. I'm going to drop some words. You'll recognize them if you know your prophets. You'll think of Jeremiah 10. For us, we don't know all that, but we can look back at Jeremiah 10 once somebody brings it to our attention. And God is saying, look back at chapter 10. I've reminded you, you knew back then even, that I am sovereign over all the nations of the earth. Therefore, if you, the church, go through persecution, which they do in the book of Revelation, be confident. I'm Lord and Master over every nation, every people group, every individual on this earth. Hence, we have nothing to fear. Chapter 16. Look at verse 14. End of the verse has this expression. We're reading now about a war of the great day of, the, of God, the Almighty. This concept that there's a day of the Lord or a day of God with the adjective great next to it is taken out of Joel chapter 2. It occurs twice in Joel chapter 2, which is maybe the chapter to read about the day of the Lord, the end of history as we know it, his coming in judgment, what that means in a bad way and what that means for his followers in a good sense. So here's a reference to make people think back to Joel chapter 2. Chapter 17. In verse 5, the middle of that verse, we've got a phrase. And the phrase goes like this. Babylon the Great. Now, worded that way, Babylon the Great, that only occurs one time in the Old Testament, in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar gives a speech 
where he arrogantly boasts that he built Babylon with his own strength, his own might, and the implication is nothing can stand against it. Nebuchadnezzar makes himself out to be God. Very similar to what happens in Isaiah chapter 14, where the king of Babylon in Isaiah's day, this is centuries before Daniel, did the same thing. So parts of Revelation want us to think about Isaiah 14, so read that sometime, about the king of Babylon who says, I will ascend to the heaven. I will make myself like the most high. And so what does God do when people in their pride bring themselves up or seek to be that high? God brings them down, brings them low. Chapter 18. Look at verse 5 and we read this in chapter 18, verse 5. Speaking still of this city called Babylon. For his sins have piled up Uh, or the ESV, which we're transitioning to in our church, her sins are heaped high as heaven. Now let me try to help you with this one. In Genesis, there's a story about people that tried to build something up to heaven. What was the name of that structure? The Tower of Babel. This is something you wouldn't know, but Babel and Babylon in Hebrew are the same word. Bavel. So the Hebrew word Bavel in Genesis 11 translated Babel. In the book of Isaiah, because it's become a whole nation and a state, they translated it with Babylon, but it's the same Hebrew word. So are you getting the picture? In Genesis 11, and any Israelite would know this, any Jesus follower of the first century, they would know Genesis. In Genesis 11, people want to build, a people that call themselves Babylon, want to build a tower as high as heaven. And here in Revelation, Babylon tries to pile up what? Her sins, her arrogance, as high as heaven. Chapter 19. Look all the way up to verse 15 of chapter 19. The middle of verse 15, we read that he, Jesus, will rule them, the nations, with the rod of iron. Well, where do we read about somebody ruling the nations with a rod of iron? Psalm 2. If you knew your Bible, you'd think back to Psalm 2. A great psalm about a son of God who will rule over all of the the nations. And the nations are in battle against this son of God. They want to destroy him, to kill him. But he will be victorious. And part of that is imaged with a rod of iron. Chapter 20, getting close to the end here. Again, there's sometimes one or two dozen of these pictures in a chapter. Chapter 20, verse 7, sorry, verse 8, middle of that verse has two names that are pretty foreign to us, Gog and Magog. Man, what in the world is that? Gog and Magog are straight out of Ezekiel chapters 38, 39. And again, if you knew your prophets, you had read Ezekiel, even once through if you'd read Ezekiel, since they occupied two whole chapters, you would know what Gog and Magog are. In Ezekiel, Gog, Gog is actually a prince, he's a guy. And his people, or his possibly his land or nation, is called Magog. He comes from the north, so people guess maybe it's from Turkey, and invades Israel as a foreign horde of armies. So the idea is it's different than Babylon or Nineveh, which are from the east, modern-day Iran, Iraq. Um, The Babylonians were Semites. They had a Semitic heritage just like Israelites did. 
And so there was some commonality. And remember when Babylon came in, they didn't destroy and kill everyone. They conquered the land. At first wanted to put it under tribute or tax. Israelites rebel two or three times. Then Babylon comes in, raises Jerusalem, meaning takes it down, um, and takes exiles. Even then they don't kill everybody. I mean, Daniel lived in the exile with his friends. But this horde from the north, envisioned in Ezekiel chapters 38, 39, doesn't do that. They come down to destroy and to kill. They are ruthless. They're out to kill God's people. So the image here in Revelation is, in the last days, the church will be under persecution by a world entity described as Babylon. And that entity will be like Gog and Magog were in Ezekiel. They'll be ruthless. They don't want to make friends or put Christians under taxation. They want them dead. So again, we're going back to understand the future. Where does that leave us? Chapter 21. Chapter 21, look at verse 10. This is John speaking, the guy who's writing this whole book. And John says this. He carried me away in the spirit to a high mountain and showed me the holy city. Look down at verse 15 if you've got a Bible on your lap. John says in verse 15, The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod. It was a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its wall. These words are straight out of Ezekiel chapter 40. So just a chapter after that chapter about the invasion from the north. If you look back at Ezekiel 40, Ezekiel, the prophet, was taken up, carried, set down on top of a mountain. In front of him, there's a city. And in front of him, there's also a guy with a measuring rod who will measure out the city. So when God wants to describe for us the heavenly city that we'll dwell in, the new Jerusalem, part of what God does is this. He says, go back to Ezekiel. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 40 and read a little bit of that. And that'll help get you ready for this new city. So that brings us to chapter 22, last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Chapter 22 is neat for dozens of reasons. Um, Here's one of them. There are three things that appear three times at the very end of the book of Revelation, this chapter. One is the expression water of life. If you look for water of life, um, what God offers for free, come you are thirsty and drink, which symbolizes the gospel, you'll find that three times. If you look for the phrase from Jesus from his own lips, I am coming quickly, you'll find that three times. And finally, the expression tree of life occurs three times in chapter 22. Now you tell me, where do we come across a tree of life in the Old Testament? In the book of Genesis. So, if you remember your Genesis story, there were two trees. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that had like the bad apple, right? But there was another tree. Both of them were pleasing to the eyes and they had good fruit to eat. So it's not like God created the tree of life to have sour apples and and insect infested leaves 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was real tempting, they were both fine. So we remember the bad tree. We don't perhaps remember that there's a good tree too, that yes, was a literal tree, but also symbolized life. Life as it was meant to be lived now and eternal life forever with God. And so what God is saying in the last chapter of the book of Revelation is, we'll go back to that. That wasn't destroyed by Adam and Eve's sin and our sin. We'll go back to the relationship that God at first intended because we'll return to this thing called the tree of life. A final example, go back to key events in the Bible to learn about the present and the future. So what I would encourage you to do is, in a few minutes as we have Lord's Supper, to reflect on one or two or three of these images. Jesus as the Lamb, the church as the bride, the feast that awaits us. Thank God that we're not members of the city called Babylon. But we will experience the city called the New Jerusalem. Thank God that Jesus is victorious over the dragon and the two beasts and that it's not a long out, drawn out piece of battle. That God is so sovereign that a thought from his mind or a word from his lips can make everything right. Trust in Jesus. Thank him for being the lamb. Pray with me, please. God, our Father, we thank you for these great pictures in this book. Father, maybe we'll only understand 1% of the book of Revelation by the time we die, but God, we thank you for that 1% or 2 or 3%. And we thank you that these pictures are so simple, the picture of a lamb, of a, of a groom and a bride, of a wedding day, of a feast, of white robes, of a heavenly city. God, we thank you that children could understand and rejoice in and be thankful for these images you've given us. How much more so we as adults. So Father, we thank you for the blood of the Lamb of God, that it has washed away our sins, the sins of those in this room who have trusted in Jesus. And we thank you that we can remember, commemorate, be sober about, but rejoice in that death of Jesus and the resurrection tonight as we take the blood and the juice. Thank you for the good and great name of Jesus. God, thank you that we were, um, as Randy Alcorn said, we were made for a person, and that person is Jesus. We were made for a people, and that people is the church, our brothers and sisters that we gather with right now. And we were made for a place, and that place is heaven, the new Jerusalem. Thank you for all of these reminders. May we receive the bread and the juice with full and thankful hearts right now, with minds captivated by and focused on the great and good name of Jesus. Amen.